the countdown to clean clothes in space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Astronauts rarely get the comforts of home. Fresh food is scarce, a hot shower is unheard of, and they're asked to wear their clothes multiple times before tossing them in the trash. Laundry is something missing from human space exploration, but scientists at Procter & Gamble are hoping to change that. We'll speak with the detergent scientists about the challenges of washing clothes in space and how Tide is hoping to give long-duration astronauts the chance to have fresh clothes. Then, along with training for spaceflight missions, some astronauts train to become filmmakers, too. We'll speak with a director who schooled up astronauts to shoot IMAX film from space as part of our new series, Shooting Stars. We'll also follow the news of Richard Branson's private spaceflight and the coming boom in space tourism. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Billionaire Richard Branson and a crew of five others flew to the edge of space and back from New Mexico, ushering in a new era of space tourism. To all you kids down there, I was once a child with a dream, looking up to the stars. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults looking down to our beautiful, beautiful Earth. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, Just imagine what you can do. It's Virgin Galactic's first fully crewed mission, and its purpose, test the customer experience on the spacecraft ahead of flying space tourists on future trips. Another private space tourism company, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, will launch a crewed suborbital flight next week from Texas. To talk more about the space tourism boom, we're joined by space policy and business analyst Laura Forsick. Laura, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic uh, successfully made it to the edge of space and, importantly, safely back uh, on Sunday. Uh, What were your first uh, reactions to to watching this? It was very emotional. It was a great milestone for Virgin Galactic. They had only previously done test flights either with pilots or with one passenger. This time it had four passengers, and it was the first commercial human-tended suborbital science experiment conducted by a friend of mine, Sarisha Vanla. So it was a very emotional experience to watch uh, two people that I had previously met fly to space. I I think a lot of us just felt that emotion attached to human spaceflight, just like we did with any other human uh, space endeavor before, whether it was space shuttle or SpaceX launching to the International Space Station. There's just something that connects us to the humans that are going beyond. You mentioned something, Laura, that I don't think got a lot of coverage, the science on board this spacecraft. Talk a little bit about um, that science experiment that was conducted um, on the Unity spacecraft and why suborbital flights are going to open new doors for researchers, not just rich people who want to go to space. There is so much great suborbital science that has already been done over decades. In the past few years, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic have flown payloads through the NASA uh, Flight Opportunities Program for researchers such as at NASA, universities, research institutes. But now, having the opportunity for scientists to fly with their experiments or researchers to fly research and development payloads, I mean, this opens up opportunities for people to change experiments in the moment or yesterday, activate certain parameters 
parameters of an experiment at certain times that may not be obvious to an automated system. So it's really, in a sense, easier and less expensive in some cases, in many cases, to fly humans, to fly the scientists on board who know their science experiments or their proxies. And, and it just really opens up a lot of opportunities for science that has not yet been done. There's atmospheric science that is just not well understood in the stratosphere, as well as fluid dynamics and plant biology and, and planetary science. And, and there's just so many fundamental aspects of microgravity or the radiation environment or the atmospheric environment that we just don't understand that we can do on these suborbital craft. We'll talk a little bit about Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin flight in a moment, but I want to stay on the science here, Laura. And there there has been some criticism um, with Richard Branson and with Jeff Bezos making these suborbital flights and how this is really a billionaire's race to space and how they could be, you know, spending more money and time helping us here on Earth with problems. Do you think that that is an unfair criticism with all of the science that these suborbital companies are going to, uh, you know, open doors for? Like many things with space science and development, it's not well understood by the general public who just sees the expense, and they don't understand the great advancements that come with either the basic science or the technology that we gain from these spaceflight uh, advances. And so uh, suborbital spaceflight, human suborbital spaceflight, as well as just uncreated Orbital space flight opens up lots of opportunities for advancement of um, you know vehicles, advancements of technology, of avionics, of IT, of, of the fundamental science that I was just talking about. Uh, and also, NASA wants to use these suborbital craft to train its astronauts, and and we are currently spending a lot of money for NASA to fly astronauts to the International Space Station. The idea is that maybe we can use these suborbital vehicles to train astronauts less expensively, uh, and, and then have them go beyond have them go either to orbit or to the moon. And so there's just so many different applications for this technology. And remember, none of the money that is spent on space is actually spent in space. It's all spent right here on Earth in your own communities. And that's by design, of course. Um, there are uh, industries around the country and around the world um, that are benefiting from the technology either in government space programs or uh, commercial space programs and usually the partnership between the two. Let's look forward to that Blue Origin New Shepard flight next week. Um, Are we on the brink of a space tourism boom here? We definitely seem to be on the cusp of a brand new industry. In the 2000s, we had the beginnings of space tourism, but those were individuals who flew on Russian vehicles with Russian training. Here now, we have the opportunity for individuals to fly completely commercially, both with Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, as well as later this year with SpaceX flying their first fully commercial mission. And so there's lots of opportunities that are finally opening up after decades of waiting. Um, And it opens up a new opportunity for people around the world to experience something that only very few people, only 500 and some people have ever experienced before. And will you be watching the Blue Origin flight with an equal amount of excitement, less excitement than uh, than the Virgin Galactic flight? What will it be like for you next week? Oh, just as much. And I am very, very pleased to see Wally Funk finally fly. She is so deserving. She has been waiting 60 years to fly into space. Back when women were not allowed to be astronauts is how long she's been trying to become an astronaut. So I'm really excited to see Wally Funk finally get her dream realized. We've been speaking with Laura Forsick. She is a space policy and business analyst and the founder of the firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me.
On the International Space Station, astronauts don't have a way to wash their clothes. They wear them for multiple days, then toss them in the trash when they're done. And while the ISS receives regular supply shipments, packing enough clothes for moon or Mars-bound astronauts is going to take up a lot of room. That's why scientists are hard at work developing a space-based laundry detergent and plan to test it on the ISS soon. One of those scientists is Mark Civic, and he's a research fellow at Procter & Gamble and joins us now to talk about these efforts. Mark begins our conversation talking about the difficulties of developing a laundry detergent for astronauts. But from a challenges point of view, um, to develop a detergent for um, flight or off-planet uh, travel, we have to uh, take into account some strict considerations. One is being able to, um, to develop a detergent system to fit and coincide with uh, strict handling uh, air quality uh, restrictions within a closed environment. And then we also have to uh, develop a detergent that uses water very effectively because, as you can imagine, there's not an endless supply of water on space station or any off-planet um, uh, uh, habitat that's, that's being developed or being studied by NASA. So uh, first and foremost, that's a, a major challenge for, for doing laundry in space. A second major challenge of doing laundry in space is to understand how ingredients work. And uh, as part of this program and to, to further take an opportunity and, and, and leverage the technologies we have here on planet, we want to understand uh, enzyme, enzymatic systems and enzyme stability. Um, the reason we want to do that is we don't necessarily understand how the effect of space and microgravity will have on the function of, of enzymes and its 3D structure. And as we can use those in a catalytic sense, we want to make sure that they perform to their, their utmost potential, or is there something we need to do to modify those enzymes in the future such that they will work effectively in microgravity situations? Mm -hmm. So you talk about the chemical issues, but I've, I've got to wonder if the gravity issue is, is something you have to contend with as well. Water behaves differently on in space, doesn't it? That, that's absolutely true, Brendan. And in fact, we have two uh, primary objectives of Mission PG Tide. The first is obviously to understand our detergent formulations and what their stability will be like as well as their ingredients. But there's another key aspect of our, our Mission PG Tide is to understand capillarity effects uh, and surfactancy as well as stain removal and stain migration. So we're using this opportunity to look at our Tide uh, wipes and pens, uh, our stain pens that we have, and um, because you don't have gravity moving fluid into a, a surface, we have to uh, understand how effective we can spot treat and remove stains. And this gives us an opportunity to leverage our science in a microgravity or zero gravity sense. And so we're, we have a couple different experimental designs to use pipette and uh, capillarity uh, action for understanding surfactant migration as well as leveraging the chemistries that we have within our formulations to, to specifically remove stains. In parallel, we're going to be doing similar experiments here on Earth and, and at the same time have a good feeling of what's the responsiveness to our cleaning systems in both situations. And then once those, once those um, um, results return back to space, we'll, we'll investigate further their learnings and characterize what has changed in the stains as we clean them. Mm -hmm. So you're not grabbing a jug of Tide off the shelf, loading it up in a spaceship and sending it up there, right? You're doing um, pens and wipes. Tell me what you're sending up there and how the astronauts are going to be conducting this experiment. So in the, in the Tide stain pens and wipes uh, parts of the experiment, we are going to first have them 
uh, pipette extrastains, and these are these are foods that they actually get to enjoy on station. Um, and we're going to uh, do those in a measured sense, and we're going to do the same experiments here on Earth simultaneously. And then, so you're not waiting for them to spill something on them. You're actually giving them something to spill yes, on, that's on right. the clothes. And we're going to have okay. some parallel uh, stains uh, as well um, because we also want to look at age stains uh, in this context. And then once uh, – and obviously you can imagine that uh, uh, astronauts, as, as, as good as they are, they do have accents here and there. So um, we're going to take advantage of, of trying to remove uh, stains uh, real time with them. And then uh, get some scientific experiments done at the same time to see how effective we are at removing them. And one of the objectives that NASA has as part of uh, the SpaceX agreement and part of the Artemis program, which is the Mar- uh, moon program, and then further on to Mars, is trying to reduce payload demand. And as you can imagine, bringing clothes up to space is not an uh, inexpensive task. It's not like you can go down to your local department store and get clothing. So if we can leverage uh, spot treatment and spot removal effectively, this will allow astronauts not to go through clothing as, as frequently due to staining, as well as save them time and then obviously certainly save resources. Mm-hmm. How, how is it done now? I mean, is there any sort of detergent up there now or do you just kind of toss your shirt when it gets too stinky? Uh, the the uh, activity as it is today is they do toss their shirt and once it gets stinky. And, and in fact, the astronauts are are uh, asked to wear their clothing three to four times before they they're discarded. Um, and as you can imagine, as tra- travel to to uh, planet uh, science science missions and to the International Space Station. Um, more and more frequency is going to happen, and there's a crossover point where just uh, sending clothes up uh, for for disposal at a later date is just not going to be uh, economically viable. And from a resource uh, point of view, it's just not going to be, be able to, to leverage that uh, any further. So uh, we've been working with NASA over the last year on this program to specifically develop a detergent system that leverages a certain water, water quality with, to our advantage, um, and we can go into details on that, as well as making that detergent system very uh, degradable. Uh, and uh, that's also part of our objectives is be uh, very uh, compatible with, with off-planet systems, taking those same learnings and put them to life here on Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Has anything like this been done before? Has, has anyone else tried to develop some sort of you know, detergent for use in space or for long-duration missions like this? And not to our uh, knowledge. Um, now, we do know, and you can go to the NASA website, Ken Bowersox did an experiment on, on this, the Mission 6 of IS, uh, International Space Station Studies where he took a Ziploc bag and washed his uh, uh, one pair of shorts he liked quite a bit. And he showed how to do the the experiment, but it was a very laborious process, actually. Um, It did demonstrate you could do, quote, laundry in space, but by no means could you do that uh, on every garment. And the amount of time um, to do that was was pretty extensive. So this is kind of the the first test in in what I'm assuming is going to be a campaign to to kind of scale this thing up for long-duration missions. What's the path ahead for... um, for this testing and, and eventual usage of, of the product in space? Well, there's a couple kind of uh, milestones that we're trying to, to achieve with, with in partnership with uh, NASA. Uh, the first is uh, establishing a, an effective detergent system 
uh, that's compatible with off-planet off missions, and specifically here we're using the International Space Station as our, as our model. We can use fragrances, which is common to the consumer here on Earth, so um, that's incompatible with their uh, air purification systems. We can't use processing aids because those also are incompatible with those uh, systems. And um, as we further develop our uh, uh, environmentally friendly detergent systems here on Earth, we're leveraging that approach here for PG Mission Tide. Uh, all of our ingredients have to be degradable. Um, and they have to be removed as the same water you're gonna, they're doing their laundry with will be the same water they drink. And then any of the components that, that uh, are in our products will need to be converted back into CO2, which is then converted into methane and usable for on, on space missions. So the, the whole objective of our work is to have a first foray into a, f a fully degradable detergent that's compatible with their systems for both recovery and degradability. And we've been able to achieve that as a first prototype and that actual formulation called NASA Tide, uh, ironically, will be, uh, will be studied over the coming months um, to, to, to validate some of our assumptions. And then as, part, as, as we move forward, we're looking at other uh, parts of our experimental uh, opportunity with, with NASA to look at different fabric treatments, uh, how we uh, effectively treat malodor. Um, as you may know, the astronauts have to exercise about two hours a day. And um, it's not like they can turn their, their shorts over the, into the laundry room. So what we are focused on is driving effective cleaning uh, effective um, hygiene and spot treatment removal such that those cl clothes last longer and they uh, can be worn uh, for, for many wears before they have to, to be washed again. Uh, so we're working across a number of, of attributes there. Mm -hmm. NASA Tide, is that the formula that's going to be in these wipes and, and pen that you're sending up there, or is it, is it called something else? NASA Tide is actually the detergent for what we would anticipate as the first use for the Artemis mission on Moon. And the formulations that uh, we're going to study is the formulations that our, our consumers can actually use here on Earth. What we don't know is how effective those, those uh, systems will be used in microgravity. So we want to, to understand that. And if we have to develop something specifically for stain removal uh, in a pen for, for NASA, we can look at that at a later date. But the, 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 what's exciting about this is we'll learn uh, with with uh, off-planet systems, and it would be really exciting for the consumer to say, hey, my astronaut uh, buddies up in, uh, on the International Space Station can remove the same stains as I have here on Earth. <laughs> and I've got to think, Mark, that some of these challenges that, that NASA has given you um, when developing this formula, so it, it's got to be compatible with the system, it's got to be you know degradable, uh, use a, you know a lesser amount of water, that could all have applications down here on Earth, right, to kind of make some more environmentally friendly um, formulas. Is that kind of what's happening as well? You're going to take what you've learned here to kind of make a, a, a better product for the Earth down here on the planet? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right, Brennan. In, in fact, um, it's sort of like a circular innovation process. Um, we have, as part of our Ambition 2030 uh, plan, is to use less resources to get to the same level of cleaning and that the consumer expects and demands, and we drive superiority in that that area. And then taking that methodology and mindset, what are the ingredients that we have today, and what are the technologies we are developing in the future 
that help us drive uh, less uh, surfactant uh, utilization, less ingredient utilization. How do we use catalytic systems more effectively? We have a, a portfolio of enzymes that we're using in, in um, across our detergent products, and we really want to understand how how those perform when they're exposed to uh, extreme conditions, and certainly microgravity or zero gravity will be a good example of that. Any exposure to radiation would be a good example of that. And then we're looking at some other technologies um, that that we call surface modifiers that may allow us to clean less between cycles. But uh, we've been having on-Earth programs uh, over the past several years in those areas, and we want to now exploit those to, to drive the innovation further with NASA but also drive the innovation further for on-Earth systems. That was Mark Civic, a research fellow at Procter & Gamble, talking about the efforts to invent a laundry detergent for astronauts. Still to come, training astronauts to become filmmakers, space flyers become IMAX directors. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Space is really big, and the best way to make someone see that vastness on film is using IMAX technology. This week on Shooting Stars, WMFE's Randy Vuxta spoke with James Newhouse, IMAX director known for A Beautiful Planet and Hubble. Newhouse has worked on 35 IMAX films, with seven of them in partnership with NASA. Newhouse begins the conversation explaining the challenges of shooting film in space. Uh, what can go wrong mostly uh, you you try to uh, uh, especially when you're flying you know a, on a payload in the orbiter or in space station continue, have contingency plans for almost anything that can go wrong. We had one particular uh, shot where our sequence where we flew on a satellite away from the space shuttle um, and looked back at it from from the satellite and uh, it was a one one roll one you know one time only sort of event. Uh, we spent I think more than eighteen months planning for that eight minutes of film that we got. Uh, in fact, this little orbiter model you see over my shoulder, I built to to test uh, to see what we wanted to shoot and and uh, to do some tests with. So uh, uh, yeah, we we spent more time planning for for that eight minutes of film than than. Uh, most people plan shooting for a whole movie. You train astronauts to be space filmmakers. How do you do it? Yeah, the the, the astronauts uh, and cosmonauts they're they're really uh, technically inclined. So the the nuts and bolts of of working a camera uh, is pretty uh, natural to them. Uh, plus, uh, as far as the, the the U.S. astronauts go, they and and their astronaut you know one hundred and one training. Uh, they get some photography training, so they know, you know, which end of the camera to look through. So uh, we, for, for IMAX, we ended up spending most of our time in them proficient at getting the film in the camera, uh, getting, you know, in the black bag, changing it, uh, uh, that, and then working on the aesthetics of filmmaking. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways we would do that is we would allow them to shoot uh, 
allow that we made them shoot a uh, film in the simulators in Houston. And then we would take that film into an IMAX theater and put it on that giant screen and uh, show them what they had shot. Why IMAX? What does the format do for space projects? IMAX is a, is a giant screen, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a giant screen film medium. Uh, it makes, it gives the audience the feeling of being where the camera was. Uh, we first got the idea of flying in space from Michael Collins, who was the Apollo 11 uh, command module pilot. Uh, and he was the first director of the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, and they had an IMAX theater. And he came to the, the president of IMAX and said, you know, flying your camera in space would be a great way to give the public the idea of what spaceflight was like. And uh, Graham Ferguson, who was the president of IMAX, took that idea and ran with it. And uh, we flew our first camera in 1984 on the space shuttle. You've been involved with many memorable and successful IMAX films to date. How have those films been able to achieve such success? I was lucky enough to work on, on the, space, the space films. We, we did, I think, seven of them in total. So far, we're still actually trying to do, the, do more. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were very popular. Uh, you know, the Dream is Alive, which was the first one that we flew a camera in space for, uh, opened in 1985. And it actually still plays to this day at uh, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. So uh, they've been very popular, uh, been lucky that way. I've, uh, plus, that brought me a little bit of, of credibility in the industry. Uh, so I've been hired to shoot things like, you know, Jane Goodall's Wild Chimpanzees and, and uh, uh, Michael Jordan, uh, the Rolling Stones. We did a Rolling Stones uh, concert film years ago. Uh, uh, I think that's really the key is, is having a great creative team and, and that knows how to use the medium and, and how to tell stories. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to enter this field? Get out there and shoot. Uh, you know, I, I'm always on social media and things like that. And I see all these advertisements for stuff. I'll take my class on how to do, you know, it's, it's find, find a, take a trip to where there's a nice dark sky during the summer. Uh, if you want to get some beautiful Milky Way shots, uh, see if you like that, see if you enjoy doing that and then take it the next step, you know, maybe get a tracking mount with telephoto lens and shoot some close-ups on some, some nebular galaxies. And, and if you like that, get a telescope and, you know, go further and just, just keep practicing. That was WMFE's Randy Vuxta speaking with James Newhouse, IMAX director known for A Beautiful Planet and Hubble. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. You can make a financial contribution to this show and the other programs we produce at WMFE by visiting wmfe.org support or calling 1-800-785-2020. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>